In the world of American politics, there is a lot of confusion right now about who Jesus is. Now, it might seem like the more secular our country becomes, the less and less Jesus would be a factor in politics, but we're finding that the opposite is true. He's actually one of the most important figures in politics right now, or at least the many misconceptions that people have about him. We find this to be perhaps most true on the extreme left and on the extreme right. On the extreme left, you can find a group, many groups actually, who are starting to band together and who are growing quickly, who would identify Jesus as the source of most of the oppression that has happened in the Western world, uh, who would identify Jesus and his teachings through the Bible uh, as the bedrock of Western society, which has been used by the powerful to oppress the weak. And so many who come from this viewpoint would say, once we are finally done with Jesus and his followers, then we can build finally what some of them would call a socialist utopia, the utopia we have been dreaming of. All that still stands in the way is this religion factor that just won't go away. You have that on one hand, and then on the very extreme right, you have a movement that is almost the mirror opposite, a movement that would equate the kingdom of God and the mission of Jesus with the success of the United States and maybe even the success of the Republican Party. Uh, this is a group that would take the idea of America being a Christian nation to a very literal extreme and want to install almost a scary literal version of the kingdom of God here in the United States. So you have on one hand a group that sees the kingdom of God as the source of most of the oppression in the world and wants to do away with it. On the other hand, a group that would almost equate the kingdom of God with the Republican Party or with the United States. And then you have all sorts of opinions in the middle, right? And most of us here in this room probably fall somewhere in the middle on that spectrum. With all of that talk about who Jesus is, it can leave us with the question of, okay, well, who actually is Jesus? Is he this oppressive dictator who wants to hurt the weak? Is he this figure who's going to come in and take one political party up or down? Or who actually is he here? What sort of king is he if he claims to be king of all the universe? And what this can mean for us practically is when it comes to those of us that are Christians, those of us who are followers of Jesus and belong to him and are called at some level to engage in the political conversation, how do we engage in that conversation in a way that's productive, in a way that isn't falling to the typical hatred and pointed disagreements that are so common? How can we bring wisdom into that conversation as followers of Jesus? These are questions we have to have help with today as we look to the Scripture. We celebrate Palm Sunday this morning when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and claims to be, indeed, a political figure, the rightful king of Jerusalem. And the way that he enters Jerusalem as king tells us something about his nature. And the way that many misunderstand him as king and his kingdom tells us about many of the ways we can misunderstand what the kingdom of God is. So we look for help with some of these questions this morning as we watch Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Let's read John 12. We're going to read verses 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, 
they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a surprising look into the sort of king that Jesus is. Along with a few ways that we tend to misunderstand him and misunderstand his kingdom. My prayer is that the fruit it will bear in us today is that first it will show us the very wonderful king that he is. And that second, it would help us to contribute to this confusing conversation about politics that goes on today in a way that is in line with this king that we worship, in a way that brings glory and honor to this king that we worship. Let's look at the story first. This moment is a really big shift in the story here. We're at chapter 12, and you may notice that that's only about halfway through the book of John, but we are already at the beginning of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. The second half of the book details the events of just this one week, this one holy week. Up to this point, the reader has had enough to figure out that Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel, but the public doesn't know that yet. In other words, the crowds in the story have not figured this out yet. There have been hints along the way, though, that he's the long-awaited king. Just hasn't said it yet. In chapter 2, he's at a wedding, and his mother asks him to perform a miracle. And he says, no, my time has not yet come. Right? He says, my time hasn't come yet. And then later on, many start believing in him in that chapter. But he says he doesn't entrust himself to them yet because he, doesn't know, he does know what is in men. In chapter 6... The people come and try to seize him and make him king by force, but he's able to evade them and get out of there and prevent that from happening. Many start to figure out based on his lineage that he is indeed from Bethlehem and he's of the line of David, next in line to receive the throne. Actually, we'll learn soon that Joseph, his father, is indeed dead and so it must be his turn to be king. They start to ask him some of these things. At one point, the Jews say to him, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And he says, well, I have told you in many ways, but you have not believed me. So there's this tension there. Is he really the king that we are expecting? And now he enters Jerusalem. The people greet him as king. And by riding in on a donkey, he says finally publicly, yes, I am the coming king of Israel. Now everybody knows that he is king. 
And as he does that, he tells us a lot about the kind of king that he is. Now, most fundamentally, the point of this is that, yes, indeed, he is the king that we are waiting for. But built on top of that is the sort of king that he is. You see, when leaders come to town, what they ride on tells a story. If you get curious this afternoon, you can go on Wikipedia and read the list of all of the state cars of all of the nations of the world. You want to know what the king or the queen of England rides in when she goes somewhere. You can look it up and you can see it. And most of these state cars kind of have a theme. They're a nice Audi or a nice Mercedes Benz and usually a security detail of two or three cars and just enough that when they come to town, everybody kind of notices what's going on and there's some messages that are being sent there. But there is one nation whose state car is a massive limousine longer than this pew in front of me, nicknamed the Beast, that has eight-inch thick walls, five-inch thick windows, is rocket-proof, is hermetically sealed against fluid attacks, and has leaders of the president's blood type in it just in case of an emergency. Not to mention that it comes along with a 45-car security detail. Now, when the president of the United States rolls into town with that entourage, that sends a message to the people he meets with. We are America, baby. We are the world's superpower. And look at what our leader rides around on. So what the leader comes in when he comes to town tells us a little bit about him. Jesus, in an era when many kings would come on a war horse, a tall stallion with beautiful braided hair and impressive muscles, a smooth ride as the king comes into town, which would say something like, I have conquered you or I will conquer you. Some way of saying, I am in charge and I am dominant here. Jesus chooses to come in on the cult of a donkey. It's never been ridden before and therefore does not really know how to carry a person. We see the story told in verse 12. There is a large crowd that has come to see him. And we see in verse 13 that this crowd takes branches of palm trees to greet him. Now, palm trees to them were a national symbol, kind of like an American flag to us. The president came to town, you might grab a little American flag and wave it when the president comes to town in pride for your country. They did the same thing, except it wasn't flags, it was palm branches. That's not prescribed in Israel's law, it just kind of came up on the way, national symbol for them of their pride in their nation. We read on, and we see what they greet him with. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a psalm. But they add some extra words onto the psalm. Even the king of Israel, they seem to recognize that he is king. And Jesus, as mentioned a few times now, finds a young donkey, sits on it, and comes in. So this donkey tells us something of the kind of king he is. What could it mean that he comes to town on basically a baby donkey? Well, Zechariah chapter 9 is quoted here to explain it. And if we flip back there, we can see the picture in full. Flip back with me, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 9, which is toward the ends of your Old Testaments. 
In Zechariah 9, the whole thing is set to meter like a hymn would be, so many syllables per line in the original language. And verses 9 and 10 are set to a different meter as a way of highlighting them as the most important part of the chapter. Indeed, they are. And as we look at verses 9 and 10, we see the meaning of the sign of the donkey and the sort of king that Jesus is. Prophet says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Here's the part that's quoted. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Here's a key word. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what does it mean that he comes in on a donkey? It means that he is humble. That is the kind of king that Jesus is. A humble king. Then we read on in verse 10. Here's what his reign will look like. I'll cut off the chariot of Ephraim. That was a territory in Israel. And the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what is his reign like? It's not a reign of war. It is a reign of peace. He will somehow rule every nation in the world, but he will not do it by bringing a sword. He will do it by offering peace to every nation in the world. So the war horse will be done away with. We don't need the war horse. We have a donkey now because we have a humble king. So the meaning of the donkey then is first that Jesus is a humble king and second that his reign brings peace. That is the sort of king he is, the humble king who brings peace as he rules. And he will go on to show this as he has already. Philippians 2 tells it beautifully. I'll describe it for you. He is very God in heaven. Right? Does not need to be undignified with a fallen human body, right? But here he is, born of a woman with all of the difficulty that that entails, and then raised into a man. One sneeze would be below the dignity of God, and yet he endures not just sneezes, but every fallen human bodily function, every sickness and cold that he would endure in that human life, teaching disciples that don't understand him, rarely if ever recognized as the God in Christ that he is constantly humble, humble, humble. He does not demand before the due time the worship that is due him, but walks around humble in a human frame because he is our humble king. We are not worthy to untie his sandals and wash his feet. But in the next chapter of John, we will see that instead he gets down to his knee and washes his disciples' feet. Why does he do that? Because that's the kind of king he is. He is a humble king. He is the judge of the universe, before whom all will go and give an account of their life. And yet he stands willingly bound before Herod and Pontius Pilate and a wicked crew of priests as they try him falsely and render verdicts to him. Why does he do that? 
because that's the kind of king he is. He is our humble king. And then finally, the one human who ever lived and was worthy of life. Now, none of us can say that we can lay claim to our life and the Lord owes us another breath, but Jesus could because he had not ever sinned. The one human who could lay claim to his life and didn't have to give it up, and he willingly goes up a hill, is nailed to a cross, and lets his life expire. Why would the one who didn't have to do that do it? Because that's the kind of king he is. He is our humble king. When they watched him walk in on an unbroken donkey's colt, probably clumsy as anything, probably difficult to ride on, it was like the entrance of no king they had ever seen before. And that is because Jesus is like no king that we have ever seen before. He is our humble king. What's more, his reign brings peace anyone who will receive it. If you want to see a picture of this, turn with me to Psalm chapter 2, and we'll look at the peace that he brings. Psalm 2 speaks of the right Jesus has to the kingship of the world. It wonders why the kings of the world continue to rebel against him, but it ends on a profound note of peace. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves, the rulers of earth take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. This is speaking of every king in the world and all of us with our little kingdoms. What have we done with our little kingdoms? What have they done with their great kingdoms? Try to cast off the Lord's restraint and do things our way. Rule our little kingdoms our way in rebellion to the true king, the true God in heaven. Now, how does the Lord respond to that? The next verses tell us. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Our rebellion against God, the rebellion of all the rulers of the earth against the rightful king, is a joke to him. He says, you try to rebel against me. Oh, you don't even know. I have already put my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he will reign from sea to sea to sea to sea. He says, I will tell of the degree the Lord has said to me, you are my son and today I have begotten you. These are his words to the king he is installing. A son of God, begotten of the father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what happens when he comes to all of those who refuse to come to him, who insist on rebelling from him. But here is where it gets profound in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish along the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Here is an invitation for the most wicked ruler in all of history to turn, to come back and worship the true king. And here is an invitation for any of us who have rebelled against him and our rule of whatever little kingdoms we have to turn, to kiss the sun, to come back. This is an offer of peace that echoes throughout the whole world to anyone who would receive it. Jesus' mission, his goal, is to make this offer of peace to everyone of every tribe, tongue, and nation, such that anyone who would turn and worship him again, who would trust in his death to atone for sins, can come back and be his again. And so the prophets sometimes speak of these beautiful images of the ships of Tarshish coming in and bringing goods into Jerusalem and the gold of this land and that land and all of the kings of the earth bringing their treasures into the kingdom of Jerusalem. Why would we have such wonderful pictures of rebellious kings bringing their treasures into Jerusalem and laying them at King Jesus' feet? Because his goal, his desire, is to offer peace to anyone who would take it. He is the king who would do away with the war horse and say, come back to me, live under my rule. Let us have peace together. When he returns, he will indeed destroy all of those who refuse to come back and worship him. As it just said, he will break them to pieces as a potter's vessel. He will break them with a rod of iron. But to those who are willing to receive his peace, to any of you who would be willing to turn to him now and receive his peace, he extends an arm of peace to you. It says, come back, live under me as the rightful king. That is what his reign brings. It brings an offer of peace to all. And so this donkey tells us then that Jesus is the humble king who brings an offer of peace to anyone who would take it. Now next to that in the story are three ways that we tend to misunderstand him. One of which speaks to the difficulty that some of us as students of the Bible have in understanding the Bible. And the other two speak profoundly to those two political movements that I talked about earlier. Let's look at the first one first. This, one, this may be one that you might recognize or uh, resonate with perhaps more than the others. I certainly do. Verse 16 tells us of Jesus' students not understanding him. When this happens, I can relate, and I bet you can too if you're one of his followers. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So here's this profound sign of the donkey coming in through Jerusalem. We just hear about it and read about it. They saw it in person, and they they missed it. They didn't they didn't get the point. Now, they had to remember later, after all this stuff had been completed, then it all started making sense. And this speaks to the way that Jesus' well-meaning followers, students of his teaching, students of the Bible can, I bet you've done it, I have done it even this week, read a passage in the Bible, see him do something, and say, yeah, I still don't get it. I still don't understand. How many of you reading through the Bible this year have just gone through a whole chapter and said, yeah, I don't get it. I don't understand. There's something I am missing here as I read this book. It happens, and it happens for two reasons for the disciples, both of which are meaningful to us. First, the story isn't over yet, and God tends to reveal his truth to us slowly through time as we seek him. 
Now, eventually, these disciples will watch Jesus bound, tried, dead, buried, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and have the Spirit poured out on them, and these things will begin to make more sense. But as it is now, in the middle of the story, well, it just doesn't quite add up yet. This speaks to the way that God often reveals his truth to his followers slowly and over time. The first time you get finished reading the Bible cover to cover, you're not done reading the Bible, are you? Some of you this year are reading the Bible all the way through for the 21st time. And you're doing that because you believe you will find something on the 21st time that you did not find on the 20th time. That's because God tends to reveal his truth to us slowly and over time. It takes many runs through to get piece by piece. And it seems there is always more to learn. There is another perhaps more profound reason that they don't understand at this point, And that's that they have not received the Holy Spirit yet. So they don't have the help of the Spirit of God to guide them. Now, in a few chapters, Jesus will actually say this. In chapter 14, verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is why later they remember what Jesus did as he came in on a donkey, and it all begins to make sense. Because eventually, Jesus will send his Holy Spirit to be alongside them as helper and help them understand his teachings. This speaks to the fact that in order to understand the teachings of the Bible, in order to understand the teachings of Jesus, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. What will happen is Jesus will indeed die. He will rise from the dead. He will ascend up into heaven. But before he does that, he will pour out his spirit upon his disciples, empowering them to proclaim the gospel throughout the world and empowering the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. Every believer in Jesus Christ now has the spirit of God dwelling in them. One of the many things he does is help us to understand the Bible. And that actually means that we are in a better place than the disciples were that day. Would you believe that it is better to be reading his words with the Spirit of God helping you than it was to be there in person hearing the words without the Spirit of God helping you? That speaks to just how much we depend upon the Spirit of God to make the truth clear to us. The Apostle Paul would live in this reality as he wrote letters to churches that he had founded. I'm going to read to you Ephesians 1 verse 16, the prayer that he prays for him. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he says, I'm praying for you all the time. And here's what he prays for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So his prayer for the church is that the spirit would help them know God better. He writes to the Colossians after this that they would be filled with the spirit of knowledge. 
He writes to the Philippians the same prayer, and he says, And I know that he who began a good work within you will be faithful to complete it. The common theme here is that he is praying that the Spirit of God dwelling in them will help them to understand the deep truths of the Scripture, the deep truths of God. And Christian, this ought to be an encouragement to you. Sometimes we read this book, and we just say to ourselves, What does this mean? I don't get it. I don't understand. If you're doing the Bible in a year with us this year, there are are points that you just don't understand and just don't add up. What do you do in those moments? What do you do when you feel like there is so much more that you don't know than there is that you do know? What do you do? Well, prayer and patience, dependence on the Holy Spirit and patience is how we grow in knowledge of Christ. He tends to reveal it over time, slowly. He, he drips drops of water into the bucket. He doesn't pour it in usually. And he does this through the power of his Holy Spirit. It means every time you open the book, you might as well pray, God, would you help me to understand this? Would your Spirit help me to understand this book? Every time we start Sunday school or start a sermon, we've got to look to God to give us help through the Spirit because we depend upon him. So be patient and pray that the Spirit would help you understand him. That's one way that we might resonate with a little more that sometimes we can miss some of the points of Jesus' teachings. There are two other groups here who more profoundly misunderstand what Jesus is doing here. And the spirit of their misunderstanding speaks to those two political movements I spoke of earlier in the service, helps us understand them just a little bit better. We'll look first at the crowd that greeted Jesus with the palm branches. Let's look at them for a moment. They start in verse 9. This is a large crowd, it says in verse 9. And the reason is that they learned that Jesus was there, but really it says it wasn't really on account of him, it was to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. Now you can imagine, you got a whole group of people that are out in the streets testifying, we all saw Jesus raise this man from the dead. And you've got the man there who claims to be risen from the dead. You might go out and see that. They want to go out and see that, hear what this crowd has to say, and see with their own eyes this once dead man who is walking around. Then we see in verse 12, the crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was there. And so what they do is they take branches of palm trees and go out to meet him, crying out with that psalm. So they come to greet him as king of Israel. They believe he will come and rule as king. And they do it, like I said before, with those palms, which again is that sort of nationalistic pride symbol, similar to us with a small American flag that we might wave at a political rally or at a presidential visit. They go to greet him with these palm branches. And then we see one more thing in verse 17, that that crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb continued to bear witness. They're spreading more and more this news that this man raises people from the dead. So what's going on here with this crowd is that they've got enough to see that Jesus is more than just a political figure who's going to turn their nation around. They see that he raises people from the dead. This is a supernatural. This is somebody who is worth going to see. But their greeting of him with the national pride symbol and the psalm with the words even the king of Israel tacked onto it shows that what they are expecting is just a nationalistic hero. They expect he's going to come in, sit on the throne, 
conquer the Romans who have been bothering them for so long and build Israel into the great superpower that she is meant to be. And if you know the story well, you know that they're going to get disappointed. What he does instead is allow the Romans to crucify him. And 40 short years after this day, the Romans will come into Israel, destroy most of the city, and destroy their sacred temple. So their expectations of this nationalistic hero that will meet all of their political desires, the bottom just falls out of them. What he actually is, is the humble king of peace who comes to offer peace to their enemies. They think he's coming to rout their enemies and get them out of Israel. He says, no, I come to offer peace to the Romans and bring them into my kingdom. And many Roman soldiers even eventually believe in Jesus and receive peace through him. In short, what they're doing is they are equating Jesus building his kingdom with a political victory for their interests. And that spirit, that mistaken spirit that equates the kingdom of God with us winning a political battle has continued on throughout the ages for many years when what we now call the Catholic Church, which was at that time just the church, they were the only church, reigned in power, getting more and more political power throughout history. At some points through the Middle Ages, taking influence over king, there were points when the leader of the church was the most powerful man in the world and kings would come and bow before him and do what he said because the church had so much power. The Spirit continues on when we expect an expansion of the kingdom of God to be the same as our political desires being met, when in fact Jesus' mission is not to meet our political desires. His mission is to offer peace to our enemies and bring them into his kingdom. The Spirit lives on today when we continue to try to build the kingdom of God through political power. And we think that this agenda being passed or that agenda being passed is the same as revival and the kingdom of God expanding when the two are very different things. Now, what I don't mean here is the good political involvement that comes from love of neighbor and sees that there is good wisdom in the Bible that should inform our laws and that the nation would flourish if it would look to the wisdom of the scriptures to inform our laws. I don't mean that. That's just healthy political involvement. I mean a spirit that says when my political party gains power, God is working. And when my political party loses power, God must not be working. A spirit that equates the kingdom of God with political power. When we fall to that misconception, just like the crowd did that day, the result is typically very heated political exchange that is often filled with hatred and harshness that looks nothing like this humble king who came into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. It misses the point because it misses not only the mission, but the character of Jesus. The character of the one who would stand before Herod and Pontius Pilate and let them give their verdict down to him and say, you would have no authority if it weren't give, given to you from heaven. The character of a king who looks at them and says, my kingdom is not of this world and you have no idea what my father is about to do. That's the spirit of our king, Jesus. 
Now, the way politics is wired today, it trains everybody on the left, the right, no matter what group you're part of. It trains you to see yourself as kind of like poor little old Israel that's getting picked on, and this big bad guy out there is coming after you. And there's usually some political figure who will come in and say, those people are after you, whoever you are, whatever group you're part of. Vote for me, put your trust in me, and I'll get those people off your back. That's the formula for getting into office for many political people these days. And this happens on all sides, left, the right, any group, anybody. What Jesus says is... Put your trust in me. My goal is to offer peace to those enemies. My goal is to bring the gospel to those people who won't get off your back and invite them to share in the peace of the kingdom of God. This is an entirely different mission than the rise and fall of one political party. So here's the truth that we've got to embrace. The truth is that in this coming decade, We never know what's going to happen with the rise and fall of nations, right? And so it's always possible that our entire nation could fall in the decade ahead of us. It's always possible that whatever political party you're part of, that it could fall in this decade. But what we need to remember is that, yes, in the next decade, the nation could fall, our political party could fall, and the Lord could bring true revival all at the same time. Because the working of Jesus in the world is not bound to the rise and the fall of one political party. No, his kingdom is not of this world. That is what the crowd who mistakes Jesus as a nationalistic hero can teach us. Let's look next to the other group that profoundly misunderstands him. This is the elites of the day. This is the priests, the Pharisees, the ones who are in power. They see Jesus as just the opposite of the crowd. To them, Jesus isn't the key to their political aspirations. He is the great curse of their political aspirations. He is the one that is in the way. We see them beginning in verse 9. That crowd sees that he has risen Lazarus from the dead, and they want to go see him. And so in verse 10, the chief priests make plans to put Lazarus to death. Why? Because he's proof that Jesus really is who he says he is. So these are people who are willing to wrongly execute a man whose only crime is being risen from the dead and being evidence that Jesus really is who he says he is. That's the level of hatred these people have for the truth, the links they're willing to go to to cover up the truth. Then we skip to verse 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him When he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, and continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he'd done this sign. And so here is how the Pharisees, the elites of the day, react. They say to one another, see, we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world is going after him. This is a group that says everything would be right if this Jesus would just go away. And that leads them to frustration because they have a big problem. Jesus isn't going to go away. The one man who is in the way of all of their ambitions. Yeah, they will conspire against him and they will even kill him. But they can't keep him away. He will come back from the dead and pour out his spirit upon all. So this is is a spirit that wants Jesus to go away because he is ruining everything. And it's a spirit that almost always leads to frustration because Jesus just doesn't go away. That's not what he does. This spirit also has continued throughout history. 
In classic forms of communism, religion was equated to capitalism, and so Lenin wrote that we must attack religion. I think he said we must combat religion because this is the ABCs of communism, right? This is fundamental to that worldview is we've got to get rid of religion so we can build the communist utopia that we want to build. It continues on through many governments today, many people who have predicted the demise of Christianity. How many times will they declare God dead, really? And you just keep coming back, doesn't he? It never works. From the 1800s, the 1900s, they keep declaring God dead and Christianity dead, and he just keeps coming back. To this day, there is in China a government, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, who has a very similar worldview to that classic communism, and they see the rise of Christianity as a threat to their government, and so they are persecuting the church there in China. But they can't do it. They can't stamp it out. One of the fastest growing movements of Christianity in the world is right there in China. And I can almost hear the leaders in the CCP saying, you see, we are gaining nothing. The whole nation is going after him. When I was a boy, the Iranian government was overthrown and replaced with, a, I think it's called an Islamic Republic or something like that. A government that saw Christianity as a threat and stamped it out of Iran. I have a friend who is a Muslim and lived in Iran at one point, and she said, these people do terrible things in the name of Islam. They're nothing like the true spirit of Islam, she said. Chasing out Christians. And it looked for a while as if there was not even one Christian living in Iran. Like they had truly stamped it out of the country. Well, today, in 2021, guess where one of the fastest growing movements of Christianity is? Right there in Iran under that same government. And you can hear the leaders say, ah, you see, we are gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. The spirit that just wants Jesus to go away so everything would be better ends in continued frustration because he just never goes away. What they get wrong about Jesus is the very same thing. He is the humble king who has come to offer peace to them. He is not some sort, some source of oppression by which the strong can strangle the weak. No, he is a king who rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. He is the humble one who says, come back and worship me no matter what you have done. And so that is where we land today on his invitation of peace. The whole point of the book of John is a call to you to believe in Jesus and thereby receive eternal life. This donkey that he rode upon showed us just what kind of king he is if you'll come back to him. A humble king. A king who will not hurt and oppress you. A king that will kneel down and wash your feet. Can you see, friends, how worthy this Jesus is of your worship? How worthy he is of us taking off our crowns and setting them upon his head. So my call to you this morning is to turn from everything that you see yourself as and follow instead this humble king. Let's pray.